Hello, listeners. This is Iris, and you're about to hear the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 1st. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast first thing, this coming from KCRG. Big warm-up still on track for the weekend, with a bit of rain at the tail end. The first weekend of March will play out a lot like much of February, with well above normal temperatures likely. The last day of the work and school week, however, should wind up as being fairly consistent with what we experienced on Thursday. The biggest difference today is the somewhat warmer start, with temperatures in the upper 20s to low 30s and wind chills in the upper 10s to mid 20s. While still chilly enough to require warm dress, it's a step toward a warmer weekend. Highs by the afternoon range from the low to mid-50s. An upper-level disturbance is moving through the region, providing a widespread area of clouds and some precipitation in Missouri and Illinois, as it tracks east and northeast. Its clouds will affect the central and southern zones in particular, with areas along and north of U.S. Highway 20 getting less of an influence from those. Precipitation will also try to move into parts of the far east and southeast Iowa, but fairly dry air in place in this area should limit that potential to sprinkles at worst. Winds will be pretty big factor in your day-to-day, and into the weekend as well. Wind gusts will reach the 20 to 30 mile per hour range this afternoon, helping to keep our temperatures mild, but making for another blustery day. Southerly winds continue for Saturday, but stay similar, with higher wind speeds and gusts moving in for Sunday. Temperatures trend upward throughout the weekend, with mostly quiet conditions for most of it. Sunshine and 60s are likely on Saturday, with highs well into the 70s on Sunday. We'll get a boost for those temperatures from morning lows that may only slip into the upper 40s to low 50s, giving us a really good start at rewriting records yet again in most locations. Part of the reason why we'll see the jump in temperatures and winds on Sunday is an area of low pressure that develops on the northern plains and moves through northern Minnesota. Ahead of it, southerly flow pulls in a warmer air mass and gradually some more moisture. As a cold front moves into the state on Sunday evening, a few showers and storms could develop ahead of it. It doesn't look like widespread activity around the area is likely, with our northern zones favored a bit more during this time frame. As the front slowly sags through the area, though, the chance for showers increases a bit by late Sunday night into Monday. It could take a little time for this front to finally move out of the area, leading to the potential for Monday to be a little gray and wet. Temperatures will also turn cooler, with highs in the upper 50s to low 60s on a windy day. We catch a break from any potential for wet weather for the middle of next week. Temperatures will slide a little more, but settle into a range that will feel familiar to yesterday and today's conditions. A mix of sun and clouds appears likely here too, with skies a bit grayer at times than we've seen lately. Eventually, another storm system moves into the region late next week, giving us a shot at some showers on Friday and Saturday next week. 
Now looking at the front page of the Courier today, the lead story, Permitting Guns for School Staff. House passes bill to create process for districts to arm trained employees after the Perry High School shooting. The story begins with a photograph showing the police and the police cruisers outside of the Perry High School on January 4th after the shooting there. The story was written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, and the dateline is Des Moines. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill late Wednesday night after lengthy debate and a vocal opposition by Democrats that would create a new permitting process for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. House File 2586 passed on a party-line vote 61-34 to at around 11 p.m. Following nearly two hours of debate, with Democrats opposed. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate for consideration. Iowa Code currently allows approved school staff to carry a gun on campus should they choose. Two districts in northwest Iowa put policies in place but rescinded them last year to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier for liability coverage. This year's legislation looks to address insurers' concerns by putting in place a new permitting process that allows employees at Iowa's public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm on school grounds during school hours. It would also provide qualified immunity and indemnify school districts from criminal or civil liability for all, quote, damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force, unquote. There's no mention of insurance in the bill. House Republican lawmakers said their intent is to bring insurers back to the table and said they're confident the permitting, training, and indemnity provisions of the bill will alleviate insurers' concerns. School districts would not be required to arm staff. Rather, the bill provides requirements for those districts that choose to do so. Quote, this bill sets a very high standard because we're talking about the safety of our children, said Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, who was the lead sponsor of the bill and chair of the House Public Safety Committee. Quote, the bar must be high. We recognize that this responsibility must be taken very seriously, Thompson said. The strict training regimen outlined in this bill ensures that the employees who acquire this permit are equipped with the skills and proficiency to act appropriately in the event of an emergency, unquote. In order to receive a professional permit to carry weapons, employees would have to pass an annual background check and complete a firearms safety course, in addition to one-time legal training on issues like qualified indemnity, as well as annual communication and emergency medical trainings approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety, plus quarterly live firearms training. The bill also would require school districts with at least 8,000 students, among them Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Council Bluffs, Iowa City, and Sioux City, to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. Districts could opt out of the requirement for having an armed security officer at a high school by a vote of the school board. 
schools with fewer than 8,000 students would be encouraged but not required to employ school resource officers or security officers at high schools. The state would establish a school security personnel grant program fund that would match up to $50,000 for employing security personnel. Identities of school staff issued a weapons permit would be confidential and not subject to disclosure under Iowa's open records law. Quote, I don't have a choice of knowing how many guns are around my second grader, House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said. I don't have a choice of knowing whether Mrs. Kennedy or Mrs. Smith is the teacher I want if I don't want my kid's teacher to have a gun, unquote. Staff in the district will be allowed to carry concealed weapons during school hours. It would be up to the districts to decide which firearms staff could carry and whether the district would provide those or allow use of personal firearms, Thompson said. The move comes in the wake of a shooting last month at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Jolif, a 6th grader, and Principal Dan Marburger. Six other people were injured in the shooting. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. Supporters of the bill said the fastest way to respond to a school shooting is to have armed personnel on site, trained and available to respond at a moment's notice. Parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, have said while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it is unrealistic to expect a single police officer to always going to be at the right place at the right time, should a tragedy strike. They noted the Perry Community School District employs a full-time school resource officer and said rural districts do not have the same access to nearby or fully staffed police or sheriff departments as those in urban Iowa. Quote, people with bad intentions are going to do bad things. People with good intentions are there to stop them, said House Majority Leader Matt Winchadol, a Republican from Missouri Valley. Look at the data. Look at the statistics. Seconds count. Seconds save lives. House Democrats oppose arming teachers, citing risk to staff and students. Rather, they said, lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school gun violence, and they advocated for providing resources for mental health services. Most professional education organizations have rejected the call to arm teachers, as has the National Association of School Resource Officers and the American Bar Association. Opponents said an armed teacher is much more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than to be an effective solution to an active shooter in a school. Quote, If I'm carrying a gun and there's a threat at the door, the thing that stands between me and the threat is 26 kids that I would take a bullet for, said Representative Molly Buck, a teacher and a Democrat from Ankeny. Quote, I could never live with myself if I put a bullet in one of them, unquote. Buck noted she's been trained that if there's an armed intruder to safely evacuate students or shelter in place and barricade themselves if there's no safe way out, quote, 
If I choose to be armed, then what is my role? Is my role to stay with my kids and keep them safe? Or does my role then become to go after an intruder, Buck said. Representative Beth Wethel Crotchell, a Democrat from Ames, said insurance companies are hesitant to cover schools due to lack of data on staff safety. Quote, there is no data on what would happen if we arm staff in schools, she said. There are too many unknowns, and the risks are high. The risks are unsecured guns left in the restroom, locker room, unlocked desk drawer, a young, curious student finding it and experimenting. Quote, this bill puts more children in the line of fire, and nothing is more frightening, unquote. Representative J.D. Shulton, a Democrat from Sioux City, said there have been more than 100 publicly reported incidents of mishandled guns at schools in the last five years, including a teacher accidentally firing a gun during a safety demonstration. Wessel Crotchell emphasized the need for more adults in schools rather than armed teachers to address safety concerns and prevent violence, including providing funding for schools to hire specialists to help students with homelessness, poverty, bullying, and more. Quote, I believe that every student in Iowa deserves to be safe in school, and I believe that every parent deserves to know their child is safe in school, Wessel Kroschel said. I want Iowa to make our students safe. Arming teachers does not get us there. Instead, Democrats urged Republican lawmakers to prioritize violence prevention, intervention, and sensible gun safety laws. Quote, the Republican solution to school safety is more guns, said Representative Lindsey James, Democrat from Dubuque. Iowans are crying out to us for common-sense gun safety laws. Iowans want to see universal background checks and investment in safety infrastructure in our schools, encouragement of safe storage awareness. They want to see legislation on extreme risk protection orders. They want to see an investment in mental health. These are the common-sense gun safety solutions that Iowans want to see, unquote. Winchell said House Republicans are moving forward separate bills to address mental health and to bolster school security infrastructure. Quote, this is a broad-spectrum approach. While it may not be all-encompassed in this one House file, we are working on multiple different aspects to provide the safety and protection and quality of education and environment for our children to grow and prosper, he said. Quote, we can all work together on this, and we can provide the safety that our children deserve, unquote. Conservative history curriculum could be required in Iowa schools. Story filed by Caleb McCullough, and the dateline is Des Moines. Iowa House Republicans passed legislation on Wednesday that would require schools to teach a list of social studies concepts developed by a conservative think tank that focus on cultural heritage of Western civilization and emphasize a positive view of U.S. history. House File 2544 passed in the House largely along party lines on Wednesday. The vote was 58 to 37. Three Republicans joined all Democrats in voting against the bill. The language in the bill was modeled by the Civics Alliance, an offshoot of the conservative nonprofit 
National Association of Scholars. The group advocates for a curriculum designed to emphasize conservative values, Western civilization, and capitalism in civics education, and push out instruction on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice. The bill includes requirements to teach students about the structure of the U.S. government, the rights and responsibilities of U.S. citizens, and a range of concepts, people, and and events in U.S. history, including the flag and the national anthem, the country's founding documents, and figures like Benjamin Franklin and Frederick Douglass. The requirements would apply to both public and private schools. In grades 1 through 6, instruction would include the institutions of liberty that, quote, emphasizes the good, worthwhile, and best achievements of these ideals, unquote. Starting in the seventh grade, schools would need to teach about, quote, the study of and devotion to the United States' exceptional and praiseworthy history, unquote. In grades seven and eight, the bill would require instruction on the early colonies, the Revolutionary War, the westward expansion of the U.S., the First and Second World Wars, the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the September 11th attacks. The required instruction would include economics that focused on, quote, the free enterprise system and its benefits, and the failures of communist systems. At the high school level, much of the previous grades' instruction would be required. The bill would increase the required credits a student must take of U.S. history, add a required unit of civics, and add a required unit of Western civilization. The bill would also require the use of a civics exam in high school that is not developed by the school or teacher. Students admitted to Iowa's public universities would also be required to take a civics exam. Lawmakers also amended the bill on the floor to require schools to include instruction on the Holocaust. Proud to be an American, House Republicans proposed the bill this year as part of a larger focus on education standards and curriculum. House Republicans said the bill was necessary to teach Iowa students about the high points of American history and the achievements of the country's major historical figures pointing to movements to take down statues of historical Americans and growing disapproval of capitalism among young people, they said students have been taught disproportionately about the negatives in American history. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said he had been captivated in high school when learning about the Battle of Iwo Jima during World War II and he does not believe students are learning about similar events now. He said the bill does not prevent teachers from teaching about the bad aspects of American history, but that it would teach students to be proud to be American. Quote, I believe there are many indicators that show we have forgotten that the most important aspect of public education is to teach good citizenship, Holt said. And essential to understanding the responsibilities of citizenship is to understand what Western civilization stands for, what we stand for as Americans, unquote. Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, said the bill was necessary to correct what he saw as the injection of left-wing politics into education.
Quote, it's also concerning when people say that this is somehow one-sided, he said, that teaching the greatness of America, it teaches the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can't cover some of these topics without covering some of the bad things that happened in America. That That's somehow political. It's absolutely asinine, unquote. Bill biased, burdensome. Democrats said the bill would push a conservative political agenda and take the freedom from teachers and experts to determine school history standards. Representative Josh Turek, a Democrat from Council Bluffs, said the bill does not allow teachers to provide a full, accurate view of American history, including its flaws. Quote, to be clear, I love this country, and I know that we have a long and praiseworthy history, he said. We have an enormous amount to be proud of, but the story has not been perfect, and to only tell the good would be an inaccurate telling of our history and a disservice to our children and education system, unquote. Democrats pointed out the lack of requirements in the bill to instruct on Native Americans or the Jim Crow South and other historical injustices. The bill does not require general instruction on the history of slavery in the U.S., but it does call for instruction on the Emancipation Proclamation and the Pennsylvania Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery. Democratic Representative Ross Wilburn of Ames, who is black, said that learning about his ancestor who was sold into slavery, along with the country's founders' ownership of slaves, helped him better understand and appreciate history. Quote, it's despite the struggles in the bill are far more specific than those laid out for other subjects, and Democrats said the number of requirements in the bill should make it impossible for teachers to cover any single issue deeply. The American Historical Association, the National Professional Organization, sent a letter to state lawmakers urging them to reject the bill, saying it contains politically inspired standards that will weaken Iowa's public K-12 education, unquote. The group said the state's curriculum protocols are an intensive, expert-guided process that allow ample time for public input. The bill, the group said, sidesteps that process to inject major changes in content pieced together from an out-of-state political group. If enacted, this measure would disrupt the implementation of Iowa's current academic standards, the letter says. The result is likely to disorient Iowa teachers and do a disservice to Iowa students, all while elbowing Iowans out of their own educational policymaking, unquote. Let's go now to the lead story in sports today, college women's basketball. Iowa star Caitlin Clark declares for the WNBA draft. will skip final season of college eligibility. Iowa star Caitlin Clark says she will leave the Hawkeyes after this season and enter the WNBA draft. This was written by Hank Kurtz, Jr., of the Associated Press. And the story begins with a photograph showing Caitlin Clark in her black and gold uniform giving some gestures of instruction to her teammates during the first half of an NCAA college basketball game against Minnesota on Wednesday in Minneapolis. Now to the text of the story. Iowa star Caitlin Clark, who is on the verge of becoming the all-time NCAA scoring leader 
in college basketball, announced Thursday she will leave the Hawkeyes after this season and enter the WNBA draft. Quote, while this season is far from over and we have a lot more goals to achieve, it will be my last one at Iowa, Clark wrote on social media. Clark has become the focal point of women's basketball with her flashy play and three-point shot, often from the on-court logo. Many players would be benched for shooting from so far out, but Clark has the green light from her coach and has delivered while also finding her teammates and hitting the boards. The guard, with one more year of eligibility, became the all-time leading women's scorer in major college basketball by scoring 33 points to pass Lynette Woodward and post her 17th career triple-double in a 108-60 victory over Minnesota on Wednesday night. In her announcement, she thanked her teammates, coaches, and the thousands of fans who have packed arenas across the country to watch her and the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes. Those fans were chanting, One more year, one more year, while Clark was being interviewed on the court Wednesday night when she also broke the NCAA single-season record by sinking eight three-pointers for a total of 156. She has 3,650 career points. Woodard had 3,649 points for Kansas from 1977 through 1981, before the NCAA sanctioned the sport. Earlier this month, Clark broke Kelsey Plum's NCAA scoring record, 3,527 points. Next up is the overall NCAA scoring record of Pete Maravich, who is just 17 points ahead of her. Clark is expected to be the top pick in the draft on April 15th. The Indiana Fever, who have first pick, indicated on social media shortly after Clark's announcement that they intend to select her. Quote, we're just simply reminding you that there are only 46 days until the 2024 WNBA draft, the team posted after dropping a link to its game tickets and a conspicuous number one. The Fever had the first pick in last year's draft as well. They selected Alaya Boston out of South Carolina. The forward is averaging 14.5 points and 8.4 rebounds per game. The two former Associated Press Players of the Year sat down for an interview with NBC Sports in October. Quote, well, the Indiana Fever could have the first pick, so people may, may or not, may not, maybe will, have the duo. I don't know, Clark said to a laughing Boston. It remains to be seen, but me and Elia may be teammates at some point. You never know. Clark went on to say in the interview that your time in college is so special and it's different from being a pro. Quote, I want to experience every single moment and really soak it in, she said. Clark's final regular season home game is at Iowa and it's likely to be one of the priciest tickets in women's college basketball history. The cheapest ticket listed Thursday on TickPick.com for the Sunday game against number two Ohio State, was $481. That's the cheapest ticket. Now in high school girls basketball, Waverly Shell Rock 
holds on for a win over Sioux City Helan and advances to first state title game in program history. Dateline Des Moines. Words could not quantify his feelings. Realization of the accomplishment eluded Waverly Shell Rock head girls basketball coach Craig Bodensteiner as he fielded questions following the Gohawks' 41-37 win over Bishop Helan in a Class 4A semifinal matchup on Thursday. And here we have a photograph showing the enthusiasm and emotions of the team players as they realized that they had won the game. The players are wearing white, black, and gold uniforms. And the expressions on the faces of the players show the emotions of winning this game. Quote, I am so happy for these kids, Bowden Steiner said. It is hard to take it in right now. We get to play again. This is all I know. And we have a reason to practice again. And that is exciting, unquote. Advancing to the first state championship game in program history, as second-seeded Waverly Shell Rock did with this win, will have that effect on the head coach in his 17th season at the helm. Quote, I knew we had a good team coming into the year, Bowden Steiner said. I do not know what that means always, but, man, this was hard. Then, Bowden Steiner finding a few words to quantify his emotions, thought out loud, quote, Is there anything better than playing on the last possible day? Bowden Steiner said. I do not know what Saturday is going to bring, but I know that it is the last possible day we could play a basketball game, and I cannot think of a better time to be playing your final game of the season. And now, listeners, we'll just take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 1st, on IRIS. That's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this message. Kate fell in love with her husband after one date, and with her son after one look, and she risked it all by trying meth just one time. Meth never, ever. Visit YourLifeIowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now we turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, and it is titled, From Ink to Electrons, The Retirement of Print Journalism. The author is Alan Gubert. Recently, a retired friend asked if I planned to retire anytime soon. It was the right question. While I have considered retirement, I explained I have no plans, soon or otherwise, to do so. But, I added, quote, The choice may not be up to me, because I'm in a profession that might retire on me, unquote. It's no joke. In the last year alone, two newspapers that had long published this weekly effort closed and two others quit printing it after nearly 25 years due to bone-deep budget cuts. That's just the state of today's newspapers. According to research at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, 360 U.S. newspapers closed from the start of COVID-19 pandemic through the mid-2022. If that shutdown rate continued through this January, 
roughly another 150 have closed since, which means nearly 3,000 newspapers, one-fourth of all U.S. newspapers, have closed since 2005. That clobbering has made print journalists nearly as rare as coal miners. According to the Pew Research Center, the number of people employed by U.S. newspapers dropped from 71,000 in 2008 to 31,000 in 2020. That freefall was just slightly better than cold mining that, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, lost 46,000 jobs since 2012. We inky wretches aren't the only word shakers quaking. Digital and print magazine editors are keeping their heads low in their office cubicles, too. For example, wrote Ezra Klein in the January 21st New York Times, in the last few months, quote, Sports Illustrated has just laid off most of its staff, and web news giants BuzzFeed and Jezebel closed, while HuffPo, Vice, and 538 pared back staff and reach, and all continue to lose readers, advertising, and revenue. The only thing all forms of journalism seems good at nowadays is bleeding money. Ideas to stem the flow are many, varied and cheap. Actual solutions are rare, hard, and costly. A decade ago, the best one appeared to be white knight billionaires wanting to own trophy pieces of American journalism. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos purchased the Washington Post. Biotech investor Dr. Patrick Soon Siong, the Los Angeles Times, and software mogul Mark Benoff, Time magazine, spent a collective $940 million to acquire their shiny jewels. By mid-January 2024, though, those Midases were taking a pasting, too. According to the Times, the three had poured hundreds of millions more into their inky rat holes before putting their checkbooks back into their pockets. Even newspaper royalty isn't immune. On February 1st, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal laid off 20 journalists in its Washington, D.C. bureau. Quote, Wealth doesn't insulate an owner from the serious challenges plaguing many media companies. One longtime observer told the Times, quote, And it turns out being a billionaire isn't a predictor for solving those problems, unquote. The problem is particularly acute in rural America, noted Northwestern's November 16, 2023, the State of Local News report. Quote, Residents in more than half of U.S. counties have no or very limited access to a reliable local news source, either print, digital, or broadcast, it explained. Moreover, quote, there are 204 counties without any news outlet, and 1,562 counties served with only one remaining local news source, invariably a weekly newspaper. And new digital alternatives, regardless of professionalism or earnestness, aren't a universal solution because, quote, many digital startups have trouble gaining enough subscribers and funding to achieve long-term sustainability, the report adds. That doesn't mean newspapers can't make the move to digital. Many have, and more are headed that way. A year ago, the report noted, quote, 
42 of the largest 100 newspapers delivered a print edition six or fewer times a week, and 11 of those largest dailies published in printed form only one or two times a week. That future, less ink, more electrons, and fewer journalists, appears as irreversible as my age. Next, from the New York Times, Jessica Gross writes, Could Swifties or Trekkies decide the election? After Emily Sundberg reported in her daily business newsletter, Feed Me, that the Working Families Party is looking to hire a fandom organizing coordinator, she got a bunch of emails from readers scoffing at the idea of such a position. It is silly, for example, to imagine organizing devotees of J.R.R. Tolkien via social media for political action. What's next? Orcs for Biden? But despite the good-natured skepticism, Sunberg said she understands and respects what the Working Families Party is trying to do. The job listing explains that the role is meant to help the party, quote, better navigate and set up systems for utilizing the power of fandoms to expand WFP's base and profile. And Sundberg thinks that political parties gaining entree into fan communities has the potential to be effective if done properly, particularly when it comes to reaching younger voters who are savvy about social media marketing and can be appropriately cynical about the effectiveness of our current political system. I agree. Social media is where many young voters live. About a third of adults under 30 regularly get news from TikTok, according to Pew Research. And turning out young voters who are otherwise not particularly politically engaged will be key to winning elections up and down the ballot in November. The left-leaning Working Families Party isn't exactly a threat to take the White House in 2024, but it is on to a new way of reaching Gen Z voters at a time when the old ways are increasingly useless. As Marcelo Valdez explained this week for the New York Times Magazine, young voters tend to have low turnout rates. Quote, No one is more ambivalent about participating in elections than young people, she wrote. It's worth noting, though, that turnout among Americans ages 18 to 29 was historically high in 2018, 2020, and 2022, according to CIRCLE, the acronym for the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University. There's no getting around the fact that Donald Trump and President Biden are senior citizens and therefore may have trouble convincing young voters that they're attuned to their concerns. Quote, young people are more engaged with people that look like them and share their lived experiences, said Ashley Alward, a senior researcher at HIT Strategies, a public opinion research firm that focuses primarily on younger voters and underrepresented communities. And, she says, because young voters are good at detecting slick and phony marketing campaigns, kind of have to take this backdoor approach of reaching them through where their interests already are and through any of the messengers that they already trust, unquote. Enter fandoms, 
which are subcultures organized around devotion to specific cultural passions, from Beyoncé to sneakers to cult classic TV shows. Tapping into fandoms for political purposes isn't new. Ryan Broderick, who writes the Garbage Day newsletter about the Internet, reminded me that Steve Bannon, the former Trump White House advisor, was one of the first people to see potential of organizing fan communities, recognizing that gamers could be harnessed for his pet causes. There have been other episodes in which political activism has taken root in fandoms, like this one in 2020. TikTok users and fans of Korean pop music groups claimed to have registered potentially hundreds of thousands of tickets for Mr. Trump's campaign rally as a prank. After the Trump campaign's official account, at Team Trump, posted a tweet asking supporters to register for free tickets using their phones on June 11th, K-pop fan accounts began sharing the information with followers, encouraging them to register for the rally, and then not show. Now back to the editorial. But galvanizing fandoms for internet noise and or chaos is a different project than getting them to vote en masse for a particular candidate or cause. Among the challenges involved in organizing fandoms, Broderick said, is the reality that, quote, the internet is inherently borderless. So it's difficult to, quote, target a fandom and then try to get the people in it that are of voting age and then also in areas where you need them to vote, unquote. I asked Nalini Stamp, the director of strategy for the Working Families Party, who is leading the fandom coordinator search, what her hopes for the role are. She said that she sees fandom coordinating as a logical next step in a long history of marshalling popular culture to get young people politically involved. She mentioned Bill Clinton and Madonna appearing on MTV in the 1990s, and said that this is just the latest way to, quote, meet people where they're at, unquote. Part of the party's outreach in the past has revolved around Bravo TV fandom, something near and dear to my own heart. In addition to using hashtags across social media platforms to join existing fan conversations about Bravo shows, the WFP also hosts watch parties that sometimes involve voter registration efforts. It wants to hire someone for the fandom coordinator job who can engage in these fan conversations in an authentic way, she said. Although measuring the success of these initiatives isn't easy, since it's hard to know if someone who engages with a meme or follows a page is actually taking that next step toward political action, there is some evidence that it can be worth the effort to reach young voters via fandom. Perhaps the most high-profile recent example occurred this past September, when Taylor Swift posted a voter registration link in her Instagram stories for National Voter Registration Day. And according to NPR, Vote.org reported a 1,226% jump in participation in the hour after the post. That's 1,226% jump. As Stamp notes, Swifties have also taken on Ticketmaster, and it's clear that Trump recognizes the power of Swift's fan base, 
doing his best to dissuade her from endorsing Biden, complaining that it would be disloyal after he, Trump, made her so much money, unquote. The presidential election is shaping up to be a tight one, and according to a circle poll of 18 to 34-year-olds released in November, quote, only 35% of youth feel supported to act on their political concerns, and less than one in five have heard from a political party or a community organization this year, unquote. Instead of laughing at the idea of orcs for Biden, maybe every political party needs to hire people who can transparently engage fan communities. The Trekkies are already on it, boldly going where some men have gone before. Next, we have an editorial by Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. It's titled, Breaking the Red Wall. Quote, We're not taking it anymore, say Iowa Teamsters, who are picking a fight with union-bashing Republicans, sensing a rebound. It feels like Iowa hit bottom on a deep dive down a red rabbit hole and could come back on a rebound. The big rigs circling the Capitol on February 21st blaring their horns, sounded the revolt as leader of Iowa's Teamsters declared that the Brotherhood has had enough and will fight back every way they know how. They are reacting to a bill put up by Senate Republicans that would kill public employee collective bargaining, said Jesse Case of Teamsters Local 238, a native of Storm Lake who led the convoy and the charge against wiping out labor rights. It's been a dreadful decade for progressives in the Tallcorn State. The congressional delegation used to be split between parties. It's entirely GOP now. Likewise, the legislature and the governor's office. Just one Democrat holds elective statewide office, Auditor Rob Sand, whose probative authority has been emasculated by Republicans afraid that Sand might see and say something. Reigning in labor rights is a central goal of the right-wing agenda, but that's just one of the lurches, overreaches, and absurdities foisted on otherwise self-effacing folks who would rather not pick a fight or hear about lurid hang-ups. They banned books by Mark Twain and Nicole Hannah-Jones, two of Iowa's most celebrated writers, Twain of Keokuk and Muscatine and Hannah-Jones of Waterloo. They bash gays and trans people and spend innumerable hours debating bathroom use and such. They pass an abortion ban at the heartbeat. They give vouchers to private schools and homeschoolers, taking it out of the hide of K-12 public schools. They cut breaks to commercial and industrial property owners and shift the burden to residential. They eliminate the statewide water quality monitoring program because it keeps sounding alarms about nitrate and phosphorus pollution from row crops and hog manure washing into the state's rivers. They eliminate the Livestock Confinement Coordinator. They zero out funding for the Leopold Center for Sustainable Ag at Iowa State University, while poll after poll shows that water quality is near the top of Iowans' worries. They try to deny immigrant students higher education. They warn private colleges that if they don't straighten out their woke politics, the Iowa tuition grant 
will be in danger. That's a small sampling. Too much to keep track of, frankly. Makes a fellow's head hurt. The Democrats are in disarray. They could caucus in the Capitol broom closet. Former Senator Tom Harkin is retired to D.C., and former Governor Tom Vilsack moved there. If the Democratic Liberati showed up on rural town Main Street, you could probably draw a baker's dozen if you serve free pork burgers and let in the guy in the beard who's packing heat. Something funny happened along the way to democracy's implosion. Small-town library supporters didn't like that move to strip them of budget or book authority, and neither do the patrons who like books by both Neanderthal fascists and screaming lefties without a sense of humor. Special ed moms are tenacious. Talk about shutting out the area education agencies with their speech pathologists and hearing specialists and psychologists, and you invite a war for life. The mere mention by Governor Kim Reynolds set off parents, school board members, staff, and agency host communities like Pocahontas, population 1,867, a Republican hotbed. Folks get nervous about gay bashing, especially the ones who just realized their nephew is gay. It may not be their central political issue, but nobody thinks Byron Stewart, the owner of the world-famous Byron's Bar in Pomeroy, is a threat to world order. He just keeps the music playing, and we appreciate that. Having spent the better part of two days with mostly burly truck dudes, I noticed none of them were talking down queers. Not once. When asked, they generally reply that they haven't quite wrapped their heads around all that, but it is none of anybody's business. They would rather attention be spent on making Highway 175 a safe, smooth Iowa road, which it is not. So in November, the book banners and queer bashers got their comeuppance in municipal and school elections. The Moms for Liberty got their butts kicked statewide. Republicans started to disagree about things, like gutting the AEAs or banning former Iowa and Tennessee Williams' steamy plays. Representative Megan Jones, a Sioux Rapids Republican and mother of a whole passel full of kids, voted against shaming gay children. There comes a point. Governor Kim Reynolds took up with Moms for Liberty and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who would be a nice guy if he weren't such a jerk. It rubbed off on her. She endorsed DeSantis over the great golden bear, and Donald Trump declared both of them were finished. DeSantis is for now. Reynolds isn't looking so good with a Trump target square between her eyes. She lost while hosting the caucuses. Bad form. Losers get less love even from the ardent. Auditor Rob Sand perked up and might run for governor in 2026. Rumors swirl that Reynolds might not give it another go. The Senate Republicans don't know when to quit. They rewrote the collective bargaining law seven years ago to limit negotiations and to force union elections every time a contract comes up. They did not anticipate that those hundreds of elections would actually affirm that 98% of members support their local union. So this year, they doubled down. Senators Adrian Dickey of Packwood and Jason Schultz of Schleswig want to force public employers 
to provide a list of employees to the state every time a contract comes up for negotiation. If the city or school district refuses to submit the list, the union must sue to force the issue, or else the union automatically gets zapped out of existence. Cases Union alone, Local 238 in Cedar Rapids, would have to sue up to 100 municipalities on a revolving basis to just stay whole. Quote, we don't sit around and wait to be killed, Case told the TV cameras on the steps of the Capitol. When we push back, we get results from a fight. Quote, between now and November, we are going to escalate. It will be more than honking horns. The Teamsters are raising funds for strikes and fines. If legislators are determined to stay on course, Case will advise snowplow drivers who are not paid for being on call, which is illegal, to not answer the phone at 3 a.m. Quote, tell them to call Senator Dickey to come plow your street, unquote. Or don't answer the unpaid call when the sewer backs up or the water system shuts down. Quote, we will quit working for free. All options are on the table, Case insisted to the press. Quote, we're not taking it anymore, he said. More labor rallies are set to pressure legislators. Quote, some say we shouldn't poke the bear, Case said. We don't trust them. We're not going to wait to see what the House and Senate are going to do. They're liars, and we're not going to let them lie to us again, unquote. Dickey said it was much ado about nothing, just technical changes to the law written seven years ago. He also said the Teamsters were against freedom. A big block of international brotherhood leans right. Dickey, needlessly, is alienating working-class people who vote Republican. You just haven't heard the union leaders talk this way in Iowa, a so-called right-to-work state. Their tails have been tucked since Ronald Reagan abandoned his old union pals. Then the Teamsters got a big contract with UPS, and the United Auto Workers won their strike against the big three. Public approval for labor is at its highest point since JFK ran Camelot. Case believes the time is right for rock and roll. Quote, I think it's a turning point for Iowa, Case said. People don't like extreme politics. It's going to have extreme reactions. Iowans are fighting back. Unquote. Case is casing for candidates for school boards and county boards and, of course, the legislature. He doesn't care if they're red, blue, or purple, so long as they stand against the absurdity and malice of it all. He wants to put mayhem on his adversaries. They ain't seen nothing yet, he promises. It's not often that a labor story leads the primetime news in Des Moines, but there was the 18-wheeler rolling and honking in full color on the screen. That's a start. Now we turn back to local news from the Courier. Cedar Falls Police arrest woman after high-speed chase in a minivan. Story written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Cedar Falls. A woman who has been arrested for allegedly leading police on a high-speed chase in a minivan. That happened on early Tuesday morning. A Cedar Falls police officer attempted to pull over a Dodge Journey on West 1st Street for speeding around 5.30 a.m. The van continued on accelerating and fleeing officers for around 20 minutes before police called off the chase because of the vehicle's dangerous driving, according to authorities. Officers later found the vehicle 
parked and empty. Police arrested Deneza Quanzi Salas, 22, of 3217 Darling Court in Waterloo a short time later for eluding reckless driving and driving while barred. Bond was set at $10,000. Court records show Salas is on probation for a November 2022 chase in Waterloo and an April 2021 traffic stop where police found a gun and marijuana. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 1st. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of many of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 